You're listening to Trading Places. This show is supported by Silverbird, the first digital bank for international trade. Silverbird provides European and UK business accounts for exporters from over 100 countries, giving them access to fast and easy cross-border payments with multiple currencies. a gift of nature or an invention of man. Old-fashioned buttons used to be made of bone or shell, but he could now decorate himself with buttons of every shape and color, all made of plastics. Plastics began with knife handles and piano keys. Now they play a part in almost everything. The excitement that can be heard in this wartime promotional film espousing the virtues of plastic foreshadows how the new product was set to become an essential component in our lives. Plastics are found everywhere. Just look around you. How many items made of plastic can you count right now? The advent of plastics coincided with a post-war world that was hungry for growth and on the cusp of a new kind of consumerism. Cars, toys, clothes, factories, homes, Plastics fueled the post-war trading boom and are now an indispensable and ubiquitous part of the modern world. But the plastics revolution created a corresponding problem whose enormity governments, businesses and civilians alike can no longer ignore. Plastic waste and pollution. Researchers estimate that more than 8.3 billion tonnes of plastic has been produced since the 1950s. In the early 2000s, our output of plastic rose more in a single decade than in the previous 40 years. According to the UN and other sources, that means humans currently produce close to 400 million tonnes of plastic waste a year. Shockingly, this volume is predicted to double by 2034. And just to throw a few more numbers in there, Only 9% of all plastic ever produced has been recycled, 12% has been burnt, and a staggering 79% has ended up in either a landfill or the natural environment. That's about 100 million tonnes a year, and 10 million tonnes of that ends up in the ocean. This is where bioplastics enter the picture. These are plastics made from renewable resources such as sugar or waste, and come with promises they can be built to degrade away quickly. Some are even compostable. Bioplastics are being sold as a solution to the 5 trillion plastic bags made every year. The bottles, food wrappers, lids, straws, coffee stirrers and so on that are known as single-use plastics, all commonly made out of fossil fuel-based petrochemicals. Half of all plastic produced is single-use, Asia and America account for the bulk of their production. And this is why bioplastics are offering an exciting alternative. My name's Helen Lewis and I'm a consultant working in the area of sustainable packaging and plastics. So conventional plastics that we use every day, whether they're in packaging or clothing or cars or whatever, they're made from oil or gas generally. So they're often called fossil-based plastics. 
Whereas bio-based plastics, they're made from a natural biomass material. So that ranges from things like wood and sawdust to oils to plants like corn, potatoes, sugar, and so on. So there's a huge range of materials that come under that broad bioplastic category. What can be made with plastics? Things as varied as buttons and batons, cosmetic containers and cockpit housings, parachutes and refrigerators, radios and razors, all contain plastics. Bioplastics are not new. One of the very first human-made plastics was a bioplastic made in the late 19th century called parkcine, which today we refer to as celluloid because it comes from plant cellulose. But fossil-based plastics won out for a simple reason. They were easier and cheaper to make, more durable and longer-lasting. Today, bio-based plastics are seen as the more eco-friendly choice because they come from renewable sources and not fossil fuels like oil and gas. Helen says there are many types of bioplastics and they've come with a corresponding swathe of new acronyms in the already acronym-heavy plastics industry. The first one you need to know is PET, P-E-T, short for polyethylene terephthalate. So there's a lot of work going on at the moment in bioplastics. Maybe I start with PET, which is um, a very common plastic. So it is an oil or gas-based plastic. It's used to make soft drink bottles, lots of other bottles actually, takeaway food containers, cups. And one of the reasons it's very common, it can be used for lots of different packaging types, but it's also recyclable at the end of its life. So it's being used increasingly to replace some of the other plastics. There is a group of bioplastics that are called drop-in bioplastics because really they're exactly the same in what they can do and what they look like and what they feel like and how they're made, but they're just made from a different raw material. So things like polyethylene, which is used to make milk bottles, cream bottles, lots of other things, made from oil or gas, so it's a fossil-based plastic, it can also be made from a renewable material. So it can be a bioplastic, although you and I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And what does this mean for the industry? Let's say companies that traditionally used packaging made out of fossil-based plastics. So this is a big growth area at the moment. There are companies making polyethylene from uh, sugarcane in particular. So we've seen some companies coming out with promotions saying our bottle is made from 100% plant-based plastic. We're also seeing PET can be made from a renewable material. PepsiCo launched a bottle made from 100% what they called plant-based plastic. So we're seeing polyethylenes, PET, polypropylenes and other plastics just being made from a different material. Then there's another group of bioplastics altogether that are made from more innovative materials and often made to be compostable rather than recyclable. And it's something that's caused confusion for people and businesses alike. As we'll learn, something that's recyclable is quite different from something that is compostable or indeed biodegradable. Knowing when and where to use either of them, be that as a manufacturer or consumer, is important. One of the areas I've been involved with is trying to educate the packaging manufacturers, the brand owners that make the products, to stop this rush into alternative materials where it doesn't make sense and then how you communicate that to you and me and other customers. 
So where it's a bioplastic that's just a drop-in, so it's PET or it's polyethylene, that's fine. They can just get recycled with the other plastic bottles. Where it's a completely new material, that's where it gets complicated. One of the common new materials is called PLA, and that's a compostable plastic, but it looks exactly like PET. So we're saying don't make your drink bottles out of PLA when we've got a perfectly good material that's recyclable. It's called PET. Just continue to use PET. Use PLA for other things, for example, where composting makes sense. You know, take away food packaging at a festival where you can compost it with all the food waste. The complexities of bioplastics stem from the fact that everyone around the world is still trying to untangle what to do with each type of plastic. Helen says the move to bioplastics has added another level of difficulty. There's a lot of room for confusion. And we're in this space at the moment where a lot of people are trying to do the right thing. Saying, I'm going to switch to a bioplastic or I'm going to switch to a compostable plastic to try and solve the world's problems with plastics without understanding some of the implications. There's so much confusion over the language and the labels. One of the most common words you see bandied around is biodegradable. And biodegradable sounds great, but it's meaningless, really. All it's saying is that it's something that will break down over an unspecified period of time. It might break down in this environment, but not in that environment. It doesn't actually help, and it's actually quite misleading. Companies like Coca-Cola and PepsiCo, for example, have been accused of greenwashing for giving the impression that their plastic bottles are more environmentally friendly than they really are by using this kind of language. Coca-Cola, which creates more than a fifth of the world's PET bottle production of about 500 billion bottles a year, touts its efforts to create eco-friendly packaging, while PepsiCo says its products are compostable, recyclable or biodegradable. Take your pick. In 2021, the charity Break Free from Plastic said both companies were the most polluting brands for the fourth consecutive year in a global audit of plastic waste. Even though the words companies use to describe their plastic products might be true, it doesn't mean that what we understand is what they intend. There's another group of so-called biodegradable plastics that are misleading people at the moment because they're often called oxo-degradable or photodegradable or landfill-degradable. But what they actually are is a synthetic conventional polymer, like a polyethylene, where they add 2 or 3% of an additive to make it break down faster. So a shopping bag that you throw away into the bush will eventually break down through sunlight and heat and all that sort of thing. If they add this additive, it breaks down a lot faster. But is that a benefit? Well, generally it's thought not. Because if it breaks down in the environment, it becomes microplastics in the short term, which are dangerous. Eventually it may break down into carbon dioxide and biomass and so on, but it'll take a long period of time. If it goes into landfill, there's no benefit. It's not going to break down anyway. So they're the plastics that are being banned. They're the ones that are most misleading, which is why we say to consumers and for industry as well, don't look for a term like biodegradable, look for compostable and look for evidence that they've been certified to a standard. And then there are microplastics. Numerous studies have found microparticles from plastic products 
pet included, in everything from marine life to bottled water to the food we eat. An analysis by the World Wildlife Fund and the University of Newcastle in Australia found people eat the equivalent of a credit card of plastic each week, or about five grams. Considering the very tangible biological impact of this, the question arises, is big plastic doing enough to make changes? Do they take the risk seriously? Or are they simply burying their heads and putting profits before health? I think a lot of these big plastic manufacturing companies would have known for some time that only a very small portion of plastic was being recycled and they still continue to use the recycling logos and they're running recycling campaigns and forcing marketing to consumers that they should recycle their products, creating this perception that their products were sustainable. It's important to us, we've always believed that to have a healthy business, you need to be operating in a health. One of today's biggest problems is packaging. We'll come in, we'll collect it, we'll chop it up, we'll recycle it, and we'll make more bottles. And what may look like sand and rocks under my feet, is actually single-use, mostly single-use plastic. They've cleared 12 million kilograms of plastic and still they find more. Today, our recycling technologies are lagging behind packaging technologies by decades. So now, if we don't want our future generation to face the, the problem because of plastic, it is we who will have to take initiative, come here and clean it up. My name's Richard Tagoni. I'm the chairman of Secos Group Limited. We're um, focused on developing, uh, manufacturing and supplying compostable certified plastics into the market. The bioplastic market, it's probably between 3 to 6% of all plastic in the world. Conventional petrochemical plastic still remains the large majority of the plastic we see in everything that's made on the planet. Richard, tell me, how is the bioplastics market evolving for your business, considering so much of the world still uses fossil-based plastics? And why, despite all of the evidence, does it continue to do so? It was very difficult 10 years ago when I joined the bioplastic market and it made perfect sense to me that why would you produce something out of plastic when you can produce it out of a bioplastic that can be composted safely back into the environment and work indefinitely in a virtuous cycle? I thought this was, this was just fantastic. But when we went to the market and tried to sell it, it cost more, it, it didn't have the support of waste streams, People said, why would I buy compostable plastic, potentially pay more, if we can make something that can be recycled? The reality wasn't being recycled. So we were up against that constant misleading information in the market that made it very difficult for us to compete. But we're seeing a, a more level playing field now. Just like bioplastics, the concept of recycling is not new either. Many of us grew up with commercials and campaigns that urged us to recycle our waste which in some cases, as Richard said, were funded by plastics companies. But how many of us actually know what they mean? I asked Helen to break down some of the symbols that we commonly see on single-use packaging. The common recycling symbol is a chasing arrow triangle, which is often called a Mobius loop. That's been around since the 70s, designed to encourage people to recycle. So you see it on all sorts of things. The other symbol that you commonly see is the plastics identification code, which is the number one to seven. And that isn't so much to tell you whether something can be recyclable. It tells you what plastic it's made from. So number one is PET, number two is HDPE and so on. Now, they were introduced back in the 80s to help recycling, letting you and I know what plastic was which because we couldn't recognise. We didn't, we didn't know what was what. But despite all the labelling, things still get mixed up. That makes recycling difficult and costly, 
because different types of plastics go in different waste streams and need to be separated at the household stage. But that's not necessarily the fault of the consumer. Local governments have been known to take separated waste and toss it into landfill, letting people believe they're helping to recycle, when in reality, it's an illusion. If people could see the plastic, they would understand the problem. Every time we put it in neat little colourful bins, what we do is we feel good, we think the plastic's being dealt with, it's being recycled. It's actually quite extraordinary that we go shopping and we see a little recycling logo um, on a piece of packaging like a strawberry punnet. Um, and all these years, those punnets have never been recycled. And we would feel good about ourselves because we thought it was being recycled. It would just get shipped off to China or Vietnam or some other country and it would be their problem. So those countries have had to deal with extraordinary amounts of waste and they're acting much more proactively because it's been a major problem for them. I think the more developed countries are lagging behind in initiating sustainable solutions and they're just catching up. January 1st, 2021 was the start date for an agreement by 187 countries, including China, Mexico, Malaysia, India and Indonesia, that effectively banned the export of a variety of mixed and contaminated plastic wastes. It means countries like the US or Australia can no longer use the easy fix of out of sight, out of mind to deal with their plastic trash by sending it away to other countries to deal with. It is forcing them to finally be more proactive about their domestic waste output. So as efforts to recycle locally pick up, what are some of the challenges they are facing? It's a combination of the technology that's required to recycle plastics and the economics that sits behind recycling the plastics. And then what you do with recycled plastics, because you can only produce so many park benches and, and other products with recycled plastics, because virgin plastics are sometimes needed to make products, as we talked about earlier, where in particular you have anything in hygiene or food where you need to know the chain of custody of the resins. Richard, could you explain exactly what a chain of custody means? So you need to know where that plastic has come from. And often a virgin resin is used so that it can be used with food contact. If you're recycling plastic, you lose that chain of custody. So it's difficult to use recycled plastic on food again because you don't have that chain of custody. So when you recycle plastic, there's a good chance you'll have contaminants. Um, in the plastic, so you don't want those contaminants to feed into the food chain. So with that in mind, what I'm struggling to understand is how can you put a recycling logo on food packaging when it can't or won't be recycled? It's one of those things where the problem is so big that I don't think government know how to deal with it necessarily. I think the goal is to make them recyclable over time. So I don't necessarily think that they need to be removed, but we certainly need to make sure that consumers understand that we're going on a journey. It's a journey that will take time and not everything's ever going to be recycled. I think it'll take 20 years before we get from 10% to probably 20 or 30% of what we produce to be recycled. Um, and certainly compostables need to be play a bigger role in that solution. As countries and businesses grapple with new laws concerning waste disposal, pandemic-created cost hikes and shifting attitudes, new possibilities are opening up for companies like Secos that offer solutions. The bioplastics industry is still in its earliest stages. However, it's an innovative sector with huge economic and ecological potential for the low-carbon circular bioeconomy that many dream about. 
Governments around the world have started allocating funds and resources to research and development in the sector, and the global bioplastics market is expected to grow continuously over the coming years. European Bioplastics and the Nova Institute predict the global production capacities of bioplastics to grow from just over 2 million tonnes in 2019 to nearly 2.5 million tonnes by 2024. New and innovative biopolymers are driving this growth and entering the market at a larger commercial scale. In 2019, 45% of bioplastics were produced in Asia. At the same time, production in the Americas is increasing. Additionally, new policies around the world to secure easier access to bio-based resources is helping facilitate market entry for bio-based products. Bioplastics is growing like 70% um, globally, we grew 126% year on year in our bioplastic sales compared to our conventional plastic sales. So the growth rates are significant. Our overall growth of the company was the top line was 43% year on year. We went from just over 20 million to just over 30 million in sales. And so four years ago, who were you talking to? As I understand it, brands were not approaching you independently back then. The difference is that we were not trying to knock on the door of brands and we weren't really getting anywhere. Now we're getting brands come to us and say, can you help us produce our products in a more sustainable way? Which is why we launched our research and development centre to work with these brands to ensure that we can develop new grades of resins to suit different applications for different companies. And that just represents the huge shift in the move to sustainable packaging around the world and that's due to a range of things, but the key drivers are there's a change in regulation, so brands are being forced to meet certain hurdles. The investment market itself are insisting that certain companies um, meet certain standards before they'll invest in them. Um, and then, of course, there's a huge push um, from consumers to ensure that products are compostable and um, environmentally sustainable. And Richard, can I ask, who are some of your competitors and how is this market shaping up? We see our competitors as the plastics manufacturers and the petrochemical companies that support those plastic manufacturers because they they still own over 90% of the market for plastics globally. So there's still a strong push by plastic companies, the, you know, petrochemical companies, to ensure plastic stays in the waste stream because it's, why wouldn't they? It's, it's a huge profit um, spinner for them. There are other bioplastic companies in the market. Really, at this point of time, competition in bioplastics we welcome. We want to see more people switch to bioplastics and we're starting to see some of those big petrochemical companies and plastic players moving into bioplastics. Last time we spoke, you said a lot of the industry is based in China. Could you talk a little about that and explain how it impacts your supply chain? So a lot of the precursors that, that produce um, bioplastics come out of um, China and Asia in general. Precursors are the raw materials effectively that go into the compound that we make our resins out of. So cornstarch, one of the precursors that we use, they're the different raw materials that are being used that, that can compost and have different levels of renewability. There are a number of other precursors coming on the market, coming out of Europe, um, and the US is starting to invest heavily in those precursors. So we're seeing more and more investment in different raw materials and in capacity for these precursors so that the bioplastic um, industry can keep up with demand. I also want to ask you about COVID. If you're importing a lot of precursors, how has the pandemic impacted your ability to source them? And what overall impact has it had on the bioplastics industry at large? 
Yes, yeah, so certainly COVID has been extremely disruptive to our business, like just about every other business that needs to export or, or import around the world. We've been very fortunate that we have multiple manufacturing facilities, three in Malaysia and one in China, and that's allowed us to be close to our customer and be able to have redundancy around when we can manufacture in one plant, can't manufacture in the other plant, um, and how to supply. We've seen some of the shipping um, delays blow out from, you know, a two-week shipping trip can, is taking sometimes up to three months now. You know, a $5,000 cost to ship a container is costing up to twenty dollars or $30,000. So it's some extraordinary disruption and cost pressures in those um, parts of the value chain. Um, but, you know, we're very fortunate that we have no debt on our balance sheet. We're a business that can hold a lot of inventory. We have multiple distribution channels. We deal with the, the US tariffs by supplying into the US out of Malaysia. So we can, we can avoid tariffs um, and, and we can be more competitive that way with the US market. We still supply out of China to other markets where there's free trade agreements in place. So it gives us the capability to build inventory and hold stock and, and, and ship out to our customers and make sure they, they've got supply because in our business, supply is everything. But, you know, I certainly wouldn't advise companies to move too quickly to start manufacturing locally all the time because I'm sure COVID will go away one day and, and, and some of these shipping delays will go away with it and we'll see some normality come back into these supply chains. In a world which is suffering from the environmental cost of plastic, some could think that shifting to 100% compostable plastics right away is the immediate conclusion. But, as we said at the beginning, it's complicated. With more than 90% of the world's plastics still coming from traditional fossil sources, it's worth considering the huge environmental undertaking that would be needed to meet demands wholly with bioplastics. Food security is a huge issue for the world. We're having trouble feeding the world at the moment. And some of the original bioplastics and some of the current bioplastics use food resources. We call them the first generation bioplastics. A lot of the work now is into second and third generation. The second generation ones are the non-food crops, you know, like grasses, like food waste. The third generation, which is probably the most exciting if we're looking at a growing population and a lot of plastics in the world, is really algae because it's super fast growing, it's super efficient, doesn't need fertilisers, pesticides or other chemicals. So that's where some of the more exciting research is happening. I think over time we'll switch more to these second and third generation, which won't divert food crops. But, yeah, anything that requires intensive agriculture, as some of these do, or that diverts a food crop, you have to look pretty carefully and say, well, Let's weigh up the benefits and see whether we should be sticking with a conventional plastic, at least at this stage. Just about every industry is um, stopping and having a look at their products and asking themselves, do I need to make this plastic last 500 years or can I make it compostable? There are a number of companies looking at making their products uh, more sustainable. You can blend compostable plastics with the renewable content with petrochemical plastics, which means that at least there's some more renewable content in the plastic, so you're lowering your carbon footprint. So, you know, there, there'll be a range of solutions for different applications of different products in the market. If current trends continue, by 2050, the fossil plastic industry could account for 20% of the world's total oil consumption. Scientists have calculated that unless something drastic is done within the next 30 years, there will be more plastic in our oceans than fish. It's hard to underestimate just how essential bioplastics will be in our future. 
not only to reduce waste, but to undo what might eventually become irreparable harm to the environment. But there's still a long way to go, and shifting to bioplastics is no easy feat. However, just like the fossil plastic revolution of the 1950s, the invention of new and better bioplastics today are being driven by necessity. Hopefully, we'll get to a place where the current situation is simply a chapter in a history book, a valuable lesson that forced us all to collectively act and help usher in the changes that are essential for long-term, sustainable planetary survival. My name is Rachel Williamson, and you've been listening to Trading Places.